You're listening to an ACA podcast. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us today. Um, my name is Genevieve Greaves, and I'm a Waramai woman from New South Wales, living on Kulin country here in Melbourne. And I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Indigenous Settler Relations Collaboration at the University of Melbourne. A, a sense of who I am for those listening today. I'm wearing a very colourful dress um, in my home in Coburg. I'm a woman in my 40s. I have brown curly hair and a warm smile and I've blurred my background so no one can see all the toys behind me. So we're um, gathering here from different parts of the country. Um, I want to acknowledge all the countries that our um, speakers are from and, and connected to today. I want to acknowledge the country that ACA stands on, um, Bunurong country in Melbourne and all of the Kulin nations, past, present and future. Council Monuments, Indigenous Settler Relations in Australian Contemporary Art and Memorial Practices Symposium offers unique insights into the process of creating artworks to difficult and violent colonial histories. From the failed and rejected artwork proposals and the tense negotiations and compromises with commissioners to the consideration of Indigenous approaches to memorialising, as well as the different purposes public memorials and artworks must serve to both educate and confront an ignorant settler public and produce spaces of remembrance and healing for Indigenous people. With case studies and critical presentations by a range of artists and researchers from the fields of history, public and contemporary art, critical race, museum and heritage studies, the symposium contributes to important debates regarding the public acknowledgement of difficult colonial histories and the decolonization of dominant settler narratives, institutions and symbols. Second symposium out of three and um, welcome back to anyone who joined us yesterday and in today's session we will hear from Dr Fiona Foley on honouring our Aboriginal warriors, Carol Chue and Joel Sherwood Spring on mutually assured construction and Lily Brown, Diane Jones and Dr Odette Collada on mass exposure, memory laundering racial literacy and the art of truth-telling. I would also like to welcome and introduce our interpreters, Tyson Boll and Daniel Haightley, who will be assisting us tonight. This is recorded for release as a video recording on ACA's website. We will have a Q&A session towards the end after each of our speakers have presented. Please questions via the Q&A tab and we will try to answer them at the end of the session, if time permits. I'm very honoured um, to introduce Dr Fiona Foley. Um, she has been such a central um, and, and founding mother, I guess I'd say, of, of this movement. She has contributed so much um, to public art memorializations as an artist, as a scholar, um, and as a very important Australian thinker and theorist. Um, 
The recipient of the following prestigious research grants in 2020, the Capstone Editing Early Career Academic Research Grant for Women, the inaugural Monica Clare Research Fellowship and Cherish Fund, Australia Council for the Arts. She's currently a lecturer at the Queensland College of Art, Griffith University. Um, she published an amazing book last year called Biting the Clouds, A Bachelor Perspective on the Aboriginal's Protection and the Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act 1897. Um, her, her list of exhibitions and artworks is too long to cover in this short space of time, but she is an incredibly celebrated artist who's made amazing contributions um, to Australian culture. Very honoured to have you, um, Dr Foley, and I'd like to pass on to you to hear your presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Genevieve, and the organisers for this symposium. Uh, I'm speaking to you from Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm in my office, which has a stack of books on my left and a small Aboriginal uh, painting from the, uh, from the Martimili community in Western Australia. I'm wearing a white linen shirt and my hair colour is salt and pepper. I come from the Wandana clan of the Butchler Nation and our traditional country encompasses Fraser Island, which I refer to as Gari in my paper and the mainland. So this paper is titled Honouring Our Aboriginal Warriors. Currently in Queensland, there exists an historical amnesia Public art is a way of putting in plain sight a history that has been shrouded in silence and complicity. Not only was silence a weapon employed, but complicity was its companion on the frontier. They went hand in hand when carrying out orchestrated brutality on Australian soil. There were no Aboriginal prisoners when raids by the state and squadocracy were mounted. When opening up Queensland, life was a lawless society. Men in the districts gathered in small parties and went out on horseback hunting bands of Aboriginal people of their own volition or in the company of native mounted police. In 1867, the mayor of Bowen, Cora Wills, explains, volunteers were men whom the commanding officer of the native mounted police thought he could trust for pluck and a quiet tongue after all was over. The native police forces on occasion were joined by the district's vigilante groups as was the case with the massacre that took place on Gari in 1851. Before the actual 11 day attack by the, that commenced on Christmas Eve, Commandant Frederick Walker would refer to Butchler people as the charcoals of Fraser Island. When the violence unfolded, Walker was joined by the native police force that comprised of 24 troopers Lieutenant Marshall, Sergeant Major Dolan, four local squatters, the captain and crew of the schooner Margaret and Mary. 
As a child, I wondered why there were no bachelor people living on Gari, Fraser Island. It was a deep question that played on my mind. As a sovereign nation, the bachelor people had undergone many years of deprivational longing for our island. Living on the mainland at Harvey Bay with Gari, the largest sand island in the world in plain view, but not accessible to the traditional landowners, which rendered us invisible in our own country for many decades. Theorist and academic Rosie Braidotti writes about a double consciousness. I grew up with an awareness that a deep injustice permeated society and a double consciousness sparked an interest in wanting to know more. My education was a general history over one week in year seven on Aborigines from Central Australia. It was a history that negated issues around race, conquest for land and any real detail. I took it upon myself to educate myself. It was a slow process of reading many publications by historians from 1985 onwards. I had been working with an aspect of oral history that had been handed down to me by my mother, Shirley Foley, about a massacre on the Susan River in Butchler country. In 1986, when I was a third year art student in the sculpture department at Sydney College of the Arts, I created Annihilation of the Blacks, which is the image you're now seeing on the screen. This is the first memorial made by an Aboriginal artist for an Aboriginal massacre in Australia. The sculpture was exhibited at Willoughby Workshop Art Centre for the exhibition titled Urban Curries. It was bought by the National Museum of Australia as part of their collection. So much of my work in this space has been written out by Indigenous and non-Indigenous scholars working in this field that I have to keep reinserting my art and monuments back into the national discussion. Another important exhibition in my early career looked at massacres in Australia and was titled Red Oak and Me, 2003. Since that time, I've written about the injustices of the colonial project and specifically in Biting the Clouds about this exhibition and the responses to the works exhibited, such as bone boxes, stud gins and massacre. I quote, I was unaware that I created powerful work that could not be spoken about. On a number of levels, a public rebuke was conveyed to me. I learned many lessons about Queensland and its representatives that year. I learned how a society can shun you through absolute silence. I learned about institutional shunning. I had overstepped some invisible mark. As an Aboriginal in Queensland, I didn't know my place. I was being spoken to through a wall of passive resistance, silence. End of quote. 
In the following year, 2004, I created a permanent work of public art outside Brisbane Magistrates Court on Roma Street, exposing 94 massacre sites in, the public, in a public art commission by the state was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. A number of strategies were involved to see the work through to completion. In this case, I had to remain quiet about the real meaning of the work for two years as the process of commissioning unfolded. Unbeknownst to all in the project, I employed a researcher to find out all the massacre sites she could that were on the public record in Queensland. I won't say that the list is the state's final tally, but 94 was a comprehensive first start. In addition to the list of place names were two main elements involving ash and water through a misting device. Both water courses and fire were methods employed by the perpetrators during frontier wars to hide the evidence that a massacre had taken place. To my surprise, I don't think anyone has looked too closely at the list of 94 as I've never been asked by anyone a question in relation to that particular list. Certainly the state government has never made any inquiries as I actively kept reading on this subject matter, new ideas and thoughts were present, would, would present themselves as potential to educate Australian audiences even further. One Christmas I read The Secret War by Jonathan Richards and Frontier Justice by Tony Roberts, each with their in-depth historical facts helped to inform my thinking and create the word sculpture dispersed in 2008. Dispersed, a word used in government reports, acted as a euphemism for violent acts carried out by the native mounted police and their commanding officers. As academic Fiona Nicol highlights in the MCA forbidden catalog, euphemisms are terms used as substitutes for those which might offend delicate or naive sensibilities and are a vehicle through which popular acceptance of racist values, understandings and policies have been achieved. Last weekend, I was invited to speak about my work in the exhibition titled Myall Creek and Beyond initiated by New England Art Museum Armadale and curated by Bianca Beetson in 2018. The piece I created was based on reading a small publication titled Myall Creek Massacre and Memorial that was published by the Myall Creek Memorial Committee, Bingra, in 2008. At the time, a number of artists in the exhibition were invited to visit Mile Creek Memorial. Only after visiting the site could I use my senses to interpret the landscape and create an installation. From that day, I received a small gift at the massacre site, 
it was a beautiful white cockatoo feather with a tinge of yellow. That was my starting point. Then other symbols were added, such as ash and charcoal from the site to fill a 10 meter long trough. A number of hoods were made based on the white, based on white men involved in the murders and two trials. While 28 pairs of shoes represent the Aboriginal men, women and children who were to lose their lives on the 10th of June, 1838. The exhibition is now on tour and has a handsome hardcover catalogue accompanying the show. On the 19th of February, so I'm just gonna skip, jump ahead in time now. So on the 19th of February, 2019, I wrote to the Honourable Leanne Enoch, Minister for the Arts in Queensland, with regard to creating a Fraser Island Memorial. The memorial would be an acknowledgement to the 1851 massacre that took place on Gari, killing bachelor men, women and children carried out over 11 days involving many from the organised native police force and squatters from the district. Part of my letter stated the following. I propose a site at Indian Head, Takiwuru, for the memorial. This is an area that currently attracts large visitor numbers and would be a fitting place to reflect on another aspect of the island's history and turbulent early race interactions. My letter received a reply from the senior policy advisor, Angus Sutherland, some three months later, and not from the Honourable Leanne Enoch, to whom it was addressed. Angus Sutherland wrote, your proposal for a memorial on Gari will require the endorsement by the Butchler Aboriginal Corporation before we could consider it further. The irony being that I was actively involved with establishing this organisation after our consent determination in 2014 as a founding director. The state government allocated some millions in 2020, the designated year of Indigenous tourism that has been extended into 2021 as part of Queensland tourism initiatives. I doubt any of these funds will be used for creating new memorials on country to remember our dead from historical massacres. However, as a bachelor artist, I can visualize a major public sculpture at Indian Head on Gari to commemorate the 1851 massacre of my forebears. This could be another step forward in the process of truth telling that is taking place across Australia. But the issue of funding such a memorial is not far from everyone's mind, especially within the Fraser Coast Regional Council. Other forms of creative expression have impacted the psyche of Australians through film. The most recent of these is the 2021 release of High Ground. Starring largely an Arnhem Land cast, Chelsea Wadigo makes the point, rarely do we see films of the massacres of mob along the east coast of the continent. From the tracker to the proposition, we see scenes in rock escarpment country, 
and sandy creek beds skirted by eucalyptus trees, desert she-oak and spinifex. The landscape captured on film is a giveaway to places far away from one's own country on the east coast where the real violence occurred in opening up country for the invasion of a new race. Those sovereign nations on coastal terrains took huge losses from British might, diseases and their descendants over decades. I look forward to seeing a feature length film on massacres and the colonial disruption carried out in the Wide Bay region and Fraser Island one day. In our lexicon today, there is a push towards truth telling. When I started out in the 80s and for the next two decades, telling my historical truth was not supported in the visual arts but shunned. In fact, my ventures into making work about massacre sites brought me painful encounters from my peers ostracizing myself on many occasions. That's the price I've paid for being a forerunner in this field as someone who has used their voice when no one else dared to open their mouths, as evidenced at the State Library of Victoria in June 2018. I now see many Aboriginal artists working in this area and it's become a topic that is more readily discussed by receptive Australian audiences. The work I do in this area is to honour my Butchler warriors who fought a 20 year resistance against the white people. Thank you. Um, thank you, Dr. Foley, for such a wonderful talk and to hear about your journey for more than 40 years holding this space. And I know that you've um, influenced many people, myself included, with the work that you've done and the ground that you've shifted and um, yeah, the cost that that carries, you know, can't be overstated really. So thank you for holding that space for us and for all the incredible work that you've done. Thank you. um, it's an honor to have you here. So um, if you've just joined us, welcome to the Counter Monument Symposium. You may have missed the introduction. Um, if you did, we'll just let you know that this is all being recorded and will be available on the ACCA website. So if you did miss the beginning of Dr. Foley's address, you will be able to catch that up at a later time. Um, it's wonderful to have you here and please feel free to use the Q&A tab and put in a question um, or a comment or something that you'd like to share and we'll, we'll do our best to get to them at the end of this symposium. So now I'm going to introduce the next two speakers who are collaborating on their presentation and also on their chapter for our forthcoming book. Carol Chue is a Chinese migrant settler living on Kulin land since the age of 10. Her work is informed by community values, practices and relationships cultivated by and within anti-colonial Asian Alliance from Melbourne to Sydney. Her writing, teaching, theorizing, translating and organizing is invested in the grassroots, co-creating anti-colonial infrastructures here and across the seas. She has a love for hot pot, which I share, 
karaoke, also share, Virgo placements and the coming, coming abolition of Melbourne University. Joel Sherwood Spring is a Wiradjuri man raised between Redfern and Alice Springs. A Sydney-based architecture graduate, he is an interdisciplinary artist working between Solo Works and the Future Method Studio. Working across research, activism, architecture and broadcasting, he currently focuses on the contested narratives of Sydney's and Australia's urban culture and Indigenous history in the face of ongoing colonisation. Joel has experienced creating, producing, recording radio podcasts and other sonic work. So welcome Carol and Joel and I'll hand it over to you too. Thank you. Hi everyone. Hi. Um, I'm Carol. I am a Chinese woman. I have long black hair. I'm wearing a black t-shirt. Um, it's from the band Dispossessed and I don't know if people can see but it's got Captain Cook and a sniper. What's the Crosshair. Crosshair, yeah. Anyways, um, symbolic for the event. And do you want to describe yourself? Yeah. Um, my name is Joel Sherwood Spring. Um, I'm wearing a black shirt. I'm wearing uh, some glasses. I've got dark brown hair. And um, we're sitting in front of a black curtain and what is a large monitor. We're currently in the basement of a, a building here on, um, in Nam. Yeah. yeah. North Melbourne. <laughs> um, so want to start by acknowledging country. Um, my respects to elders before us, um, First Nations amongst us, and many generations to come. Um, also, uh, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge First Nations peoples who are presenting today, who organized this, and who are listening here. Um, sovereignty has never been ceded and colonization continues. So I come to this presentation, um, to this collaboration with Joe, as a Chinese migrant settler whose family moved here as economic migrants in 2003. Um, and while I'm part of the Asian diaspora, my feet are firmly planted on these lands, um, uh, Kulin Nation lands, Wurundjeri and Bunuran. Um, people's lands. And so my responsibility is towards struggles here, but also to struggles um, across Asia, and I guess, yeah, internationalist stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'd also like to pay my respects and acknowledge um, all the mob presenting today and everyone who's watching. Um, I want to also uh, extend my acknowledgements to where I'm from. I grew up on Gadigal country. Um, and I just want to pay my respects um, to that place as well. Um, should we get into it? Yeah. And yeah, um, special, I like, especially I'd like to thank um, Genevieve and Amy for inviting us uh, to share, I guess, some of the things that we've been thinking about and want to write about for this chapter. So we thought that a good way to start was just to read out our dis um, abstract. Uh, so, if mutually assured destruction is a Cold War military strategy that insists upon the annihilation of all life, how do we conceive of a mutually assured reconstruction that assures life and is not based on a white liberal politics of recognition and reconciliation? Our chapter will begin from Kame Botany Bay National Park as a prompt 
It's $50 million redevelopment that seeks balanced storytelling, in their words. Um, while statues of murderers continue to be protected by cops and heritage law, new sculptures have been commissioned to mark the 250 year um, of first contact between Uyghur people and British colonizers as part of the Kame master plan. Although the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has effectively delayed both the Endeavour celebrations and the Guigal resistance gathering in response and refusal to it, this redevelopment project has continued. Yet it is merely one example of many sculpture commissions over recent years that speaks to what we call a memorializing affect. This affect seems to materialize first um, as beautiful, spiritual, and solemn monuments made by Indigenous artists, an affect that has filtered down to architecture's recent interest in raw materiality. Our chapter will discuss the spatial and material propositions and implications of recent Indigenous monuments considering the processes through which they are produced, their role in ongoing gentrification and dispossession, and to ask, can institutional and state monument commissions be read as acts of innocence? Even in their aesthetic agendas of commemorating indigenous grief, struggle, death, what then is the politics of engagement with the monument in context of a settler state? What might it take to smash the colonial pedestal and work through the monumental task in cultivating relational and material, material mutually assured reconstruction? So first of all, um, given the time that we've got, we just want to acknowledge um, the thinking that we're coming to with this. Um, we're not here to place judgment per se on um, the way um, Indigenous artists wish to express um, their own perspectives and their own intentions towards um, the kind of ideas towards counter monument, counter memorializing or counter monuments. Um, we want to acknowledge some of the artists here that we are speaking from um, and, and referencing in our work if we don't get to uh, speak to their work specifically or directly. Um, we're more interested in sort of um, in beginning to unpack and use sort of a critical material lens to analyze how monuments function in relation to um, indigenous lands and indigenous bodies um, and other settler bodies as well. So I think off the top, it's, uh, it's important to state what's at stake here um, because the disempowering of the dead was and still is so important to the, implement, the implementation of extractive, extractivist forms of production. Um, in a sense, disempowering ancestors. Um, the colonial model of coexistence predicated on a rigid distinction between life and death, living and non-living, um, clashed not only in Kameh, but across this entire continent and in another sense across the entire world's indigenous peoples. Um, what, what it clashed with was an extended reproductive structures um, where ancestors are co-present with the living. Um, where to care for the dead is to care for the environment. In other words, colonialism clashed with a radically different form of environmental and ecological architecture. Um, so we want to start in Kameh or Botany Bay. And 
from my perspective, it's there in the name. Uh, when, when colonists arrived, they originally named it Stingray Bay for the animals that were um, existed in the waters, but clearly, quickly, um, the sort of intentions towards uh, what this country held, um, that of the uh, botanical um, specimens that they wished to partake in, sort of, I think, is quite telling in revealing uh, the sort of materializing worldview that kind of came with um, the first fleet. Uh, I think we like to talk about um, anthropology as uh, really, and I'm not going to deny that anthropology is a very strong kind of stronghold for colonial logics, but um, the disciplines that arrived here as well, um, that, that are botany and geology, I think kind of materialize not only the country and the animals, but the people. Um, so, we want to talk about that historically, but it's also important to talk about it kind of in a contemporary political sense. So in 2019, the New South Wales Department of Planning took over the management of national parks and began seeking ways to open them up to essentially raise revenue. Um, the Kamei Botany Bay National Park is a site for a new $50 million redevelopment, um, commissioning uh, many different types of sculptures, as well as a brand new visitor center on the site of the national park, um, which seeks to six balance storytelling um, to locate. I want to locate the sort of lineages and limitations of some of these ideas about the materials and the materiality of this place. Um, because I think it is these materializing ideas that kind of form an um, epistemological base by which race and difference is consolidated in this country in a lot of ways, um, both in the histories of settler colonialism, but also I think in our contemporary articulations um, of erasure on this country. Um, and I think kind of these, in, these historical processes are still embedded in the ways that we think about our contemporary material practices um, from the construction of new architectural developments and the maintenance of historical monuments within these disciplines of thought, um, these things as, that we might regard as natural resources, um, but are also embedded with them are philosophies of reason that establish methods of enclosure and capture through grammars of identification. And this is why it's important to talk about materiality. Uh, essentially, the thesis is kind of coming from the work of Sylvia Winter by way of um, critical geologist Catherine Yusuf, who talks about matter and materials as racialized within the grammar of the inhuman um, through a white extractive logic um, that renders blackness as materiality uh, rather than just a metaphor. I think it's worth emphasizing uh, the significance of material racialization as a scheme um, through colonization and kind of necessitated and facilitated uh, indigenous genocides, conflict struggle, settler colonialism. Um, I think it's worth to acknowledge, it's worth acknowledging um, that the sort of subject object relationship in human in, in the inhuman categorization um, was can be more accurately described as a sort of white perspective and a submission entirely to the logics of extraction. So why talk about architecture in relationship to these things? Um, my perspective is to critically analyze and look at the way in which architecture is um, kind of mobilizing monuments and monumentality and memorialization to develop um, Aboriginal country, to open up um, national parks and other spaces for redevelopment. Um, we need to think about whose lands these materials are extracted from when we construct new monuments and memorials. And um, this logic of sort of naming 
developments after um, Indigenous warriors uh, memorialising in monumental moments um, is not new uh, in any sense. Uh, I come from and grew up in a community where there's now a 26-storey student housing building um, that was built on the site of Marawina Kindergarten, um, which was the original breakfast crow program that was devised of in the block in um, Redfern and sustained for 30 years. Um, that building is now named after Pemaway um, inside of a rapidly gentrifying Redfern. Um, so we want to locate more uh, an analysis of how these, these monuments come into form and be critically aware of, though they have, so, though architecture and art commissions have this, you know, semiotic and you know, sim symbolic embodiments, um, what about the practices are still extracting? And what about these practices kind of recast extractive practices um, as reconciliatory? In particular ways. So I want to jump to another um, set of contexts um, and thinking about what what architecture does. What is um, we can understand how architecture has become a tool in kind of global property speculation, and so too has its services become useful in delivering um, quite impactful and, and interesting and provoking um, memorials. So I want to I want to break down um, two memorials um, that were devised of and I think commissioned in partnership with uh, a Victoria-based architecture office, uh, edition office. The image that you're looking at now is um, a work that was built in collaboration um, with um, artist Yoni Skers, um, the titled In Absence. But I think what's embodied within it, or at least what is being spoken about is sort of this, this conflict inherent in the kind of apparent cognitive dissonance um, when we attempt to address um, settlement violence. Um, when the epistemic horizon of what determines what's possible for architecture to say or mean is, is itself uh, kind of a product of colonial power. Um, and, I, and I think that this is, deserves more, atten more attention. Um, noteworthy responses to these questions are these two projects um, that I think are interesting. They kind of operate as collaborations with prominent contemporary artists, both Yoni Scarce and the one we're looking at now um, for our country, um, which was done in collaboration with Dan Boyd. Um, these were commissioned the first through the NGA, this one uh, through the Australian War Memorial. Um, they both stem from incredibly rich practices. Um, and I'm not, here to, I'm not here to debate that. Um, they materialize first as beautiful, spiritual and solemn monuments made by indigenous artists. Um, but what is more concerning for me as, a, as coming from architecture background and someone who wants to talk is the relative opaqueness at which these collaborations have formed an informed edition officers um, practice. And, and to what extent does the materiality of the monument and its affect um, have, how is that filtered down into their future projects and the way that they continue to um, Built. I think when attempting to address um, Indigenous conflict and violence, um, it's interesting to see the sort of cognitive dissonance inherent with architectural practices. Um, building these platforms for conversation about these issues while getting work to develop private residential housing on unceded stolen lands. Um, the, the NGV commission leverages the semiotic potential of architecture and in doing so, I think it just neglects the material reality of what this structure is and does. 
Um, architecture is a mechanism. It is a process that sits at the intersection of land and capital in this country. And that you can't deny that. And I think it's important to keep those things in mind when we think about buildings and architectural commissions more broadly by the state. Um, so to follow on uh, this point um, around, yeah, the way that these monuments, you know, they have a certain look to them um, and they like, I think there's like a not so transparent process of commission and building of them as well. Uh, I guess I want to put forward the idea of pacification um, through government funded monuments and so to define pacification, it's um, a word that has Roman roots in Pax, which is peace. Um, and this is, I guess, Pax has been um, originally etched into Roman monuments. Um, so it's about, the word itself um, is about eliminating the threat of war um, and to include both the absence of violence and the forceful creation and main maintenance of a political order. So when um, the government put up uh, the sculptures at Kame um, quietly, um, I think it was during lockdown, the first lockdown period. Um, and it was also, it just happened to be also after the Endeavor 250 celebrations and the um, resistance gathering um, were both canceled. Uh, so anyways, the sculptures popped up quietly um, and it doesn't surprise me um, that I guess this happened in this sort of sequence of events. Um, there's another concept that I wanna bring up. Uh, when we, I guess, like consider monuments and how we talk about them in sort of, in, in these like art world spaces. So culturalism um, is an, abs an abstraction of culture from any structural or material analysis. What um, Joe was trying to emphasize before about, you know, how do we think um, more about the process of how these monuments come to be, what materials they're made of, like where the what lands the materials co um, come from. This is, I guess, the material analysis that we're really trying to emphasize like the importance of, because we can't just really like stay on the level of um, talking about how like, you know, this culture is legitimate um, for these lives to exist. I think it always comes back to this question of like, um, who are we trying to appeal to? Um, who are we trying to prove like our worth to? And when I say our, um, I'm mainly speaking to, I guess, uh, non-white folks. Um, but yeah, anyways, this is, Wait, sorry, to bring it back to culturalism. Um, so on one hand, culturalism is employed by the state via governmental fronts that promote cultural connection and affinity between marginalized folks and the state. Um, on the other hand, I would say culturalism also disciplines um, organizations and communities that are building connections via um, anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism and anti-capitalism. I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, what we're trying to sort of emphasize is 
basically to question, you know, like how hard are we fighting on this terrain of like representation? Um, because most, a, a lot of the time, a lot of the time when it's government funded, it is pretty much a front for counter revolution because it comes from top down. Um, and it will consistently, I think, try to trade in settler guilt. Um, which is not really like a sustainable way of building relationships. Um, so how much? Uh, I think there's two more points that I wanna bring up. Um, so what you're looking at here is um, the monument um, of Tanaminaway and Mobohina. Um, it's on Melbourne City Council land, um, but it's also like one of the first major monuments um, to frontier wars in a capital city in this country. And so it's like super close to MIT. Um, Tanamina Wait and Mubohina are members of a Tasmanian Aboriginal group who moved to the mainland and conducted a series of guerrilla raids on the frontiers of the new settlement. Um, Joseph Toscano is someone who campaigned for five years for this monument to exist um, alongside uh, Tasmanian Aboriginal mob and also I think local um, mob who live in Melbourne. And I remember T Joseph Toscano saying um, in an interview with Bo Spearim that he hopes that migrants would come um, and you know sort of like engage with this monument, um, understand it like, and, and I guess like seek out some sort of connection towards indigenous sovereignty and land rights um, and understand, you know, our position in it. But I wanna just remind, I, th I think like sort of, I wanna bring it back to how there are a lot of barriers for non-white recent migrants, um, refugees, working class folks, to engage with history here, let alone um, participate in the struggle. Um, a, mo a monument very often isn't enough because there's an assumption of like brief learning and reading um, and how that becomes empathy and allyship. But I guess I think there's some stuff to think through here in terms of how we conceive of solidarity, um, how uh, the binary of indigenous and non-indigenous um, is not sufficient when we're trying to discuss um, how we move forward. And so my final point is about, I guess, like how monuments can facilitate infrastructures of solidarity. Uh, this monument here has, um, I think a yearly ceremony, um, pretty sure it's right before uh, invasion day, um, January 26th. And I suppose like that happening enables political education to occur, um, even though it's perhaps like a one off, like one, one day thing. Um, but yeah, I guess at the end of the day, I personally um, don't think that we need new monuments. Um, I, I think that we need our communities to be safe and the hard work is like actually figuring out how we build those relationships. Um, and you know, like it doesn't have to happen with a monument or around it.
um, even though it, monuments can be useful um, for that purpose. Yeah, I'd rather see, I guess, like young people and elders being cared for, um, political education that is not top down, coming from institutions, but built with the experiences and needs of working class, poor, racialized, disabled folks. Um, yeah, I think that I'll just call and, it there. And I think that what's, what's vital is um, trying to think of ways in which we can interrogate these objects further. I think there is a value, there's, there's clearly value and clearly importance in framing um, unheard stories, which I feel like we need to address um, continuously. Uh, but if we accept um, at a certain level, just the symbolic gestures that come from top-down systems without interrogating the systems that brought them into form and the relationships that are inherent to those things, which are still extractive mm -hmm. for the most part, um, things are not going to progress in a way that I think um, personally I would see as um, beneficial for my own community mm -hmm. and in other communities as well. So mm -hmm. I think that's where we're going to leave it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Joel and Carol. That was an amazing presentation and there's so much material there to unpack and um, really appreciate you bringing all these different critical lenses and approaches, as you say, to interrogating these sites. I think it's a really important um, idea and, and you brought lots of us to lots of ideas for us to sort of work through. And I see we're getting some questions there and I'm sure we'll get lots more. Um, I'm going to take this moment now to introduce our next speakers. Uh, there are three of them, and I'm going to read out all their bios because they're all um, really diverse in their practice and, and do amazing things, but are all working in the space of, of racial literacy. So firstly, Lily Brown. Um, she's an interdisciplinary educator and researcher based in the Indigenous Studies Program in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. Um, with a background in critical Indigenous studies, education and youth sociology, her work seeks to attend to the narratives and power relations that shape social structures. Lily's research and teaching focuses on the possibilities education presents as both a site of positive transformation and social reproduction. The ongoing colonial state violence resisted by First Peoples and the way anti-Indigenous racism as foundational to Australian nationhood continues to function. Lily's academic practice is informed by her relationships and work with different communities in Victoria and across Australia, including with Torres Strait Islander and Aboriginal young people, their families, communities and schools. Lily belongs to the Gumbanya people of the Mid-North Coast of New South Wales. Welcome Lily. Diane Jones is a Noongar artist whose photo media work deals with Indigenous identity and cultural history. Diane completed a Masters of Visual Arts at the Victorian College of the Arts and is currently undertaking a PhD. Her work has been exhibited in numerous exhibitions in Australia and overseas and is included in the collections of many large institutions nationally and state collections. Thanks, Diane. It's great to have you here. Dr. Odette Kalada is a senior lecturer in the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. Kalada researches on race, sexuality, and gender in Australian writing and the arts. She is interested in the constructions of nation, body, and identity in creative representations 
and the teaching of racial literacy. Kalada has white and Egyptian heritage and her writing has appeared in numerous publications. Um, it's wonderful to have you all here and I'm just gonna hand over to the three of you. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. I do, do you wanna share the screen? Sure. Um, just before beginning, we would like to acknowledge the sovereign custodians and first peoples of the lands on which we are calling in from today. I have the pleasure of calling in from Yaru country in Rubibi, Broome, and Odette and Diane are calling in from the land of the Kulin peoples, um, Wurundjeri country specifically in Nam, Melbourne. I'd also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people and Wurundjeri country as the place I have lived um, for the last decade. This image um, in this slide, um, when Odette gets Hi. it up, <laughs> no, that's fine. that's fine, Odette, yeah. um, is of Mary Creek. Um, on Wurundjeri country and this is a shared special place for all three of us um, presenting today. Yeah so um, I'm just going to speak briefly uh, to give an idea of our abstract and um, ideas for the uh, paper that we're writing together. Uh, firstly I just acknowledge that um, I'm speaking to you from Wurundjeri land of the Kulin nations and uh, elders and ancestors past present and future and that sovereignty on this land has never been ceded. Um, I'd also really like to thank uh, Genevieve and Amy for inviting us to be part of this um, incredible symposium. And also that, um, you know, to be part of this is a great privilege given the um, inspiring artists and scholars uh, who are all um, we're getting to hear from and, and uh, be part of this project with. Um, I'd also just like to mention that I can't think of a, a more timely a moment for a symposium like this and the great need for it, given that in the last um, day or so, the UK has just passed a crime bill uh, that now protects statues from uh, defacement or harm. Um, it used to be three months and it's now increased to 10 years, which is double the time um, for actually harming, resulting, um, women so a concrete statue's body is now protected with double the length of time than women's bodies in the UK um, and that was a response to the toppling of the statues. Um, so our paper is uh, called Mass Exposure, Memory Laundering, Racial Literacy and the Art of Truth Telling and you'll be hearing more from Diane about this amazing artwork. Um, next slide please. Uh, so we argue in our um, paper that attempts to obscure the connections between colonial celebrated names and places from their origins in acts of colonisation, slavery, eugenics and genocide can be understood as a form of memory laundering. There's a correlation between the laundering of dirty money and the morphine of historic figures through a sequence of distortions and erasures to enable them to emerge whitewashed as elevated and revered fixtures foundational to a sacralized national landscape and imaginary. We explore this idea in relation to the factual transmission of nation building wealth, having roots both in the legacies of slavery money from the British empire and the slavery and oppression of First Nations peoples. So we're really interested in the, um, the legacies of British slave ownership database that now it's available online where we can actually uh, trace and search in that database for the names of slave owners who are paid out with compensation to free 
their slaves, as slaves were considered property, and connecting that wealth to um, Australia and, and ideas of uh, the kind of wealth that was used here. And I'd also acknowledge there's a really um, interesting Western Australian legacies of British slavery project, which is starting to make um, that do that work and making those connections. Okay, uh, next slide, please. Um, so the role of omission and denial in education and the visual ongoing colonising through statues, street names and commemorative practices are pivotal to this process. And we're really interested to explore how the kind of idea of forgetting is strategically used and um, maybe counted for increasing racial literacy and drawing on the work of artists, exposing the crimes and refusing this constructed ignorance through creative interventions and decolonising practices. Um, and I'm now going to pass over to Diane because um, her work captures um, really powerfully uh, creative interventions into this space. Uh, so next slide, please. Hi, everybody. Um, so this work in particular, oh, if we go back... One. Uh, yes. Um, I thought it was really interesting that these are uh, that there was a protest in 2020 at the Black Lives Matter movement, and I had uh, responded to protests that were happening in 2001 during the reconciliation marches across bridges all over Australia, um, Sydney Harbour Bridge, every bridge that was available from Perth to Sydney um, and they were actually um, asking John Howard in particular at the time to acknowledge the stolen generation. What we've noticed is that Kevin Rudd did actually do it, but we are still having this problem with these statues of Captain Cook and the acknowledgements and, and I, I feel like even though I did this work in 2000 and one, sorry, just having tech issues <laughs> at the same time. Um, this is still ongoing. This work is still ongoing. Um, next slide. Um, this particular work, uh, I was invited to a residency at Perth Parliament House. And I made these a selection of works. If you go back one, um, this one is one of the first works that you actually see when you do the art tour. And it's actually known as um, the forefathers of Perth and Western Australia. Um, this is my first introduction to Perth Parliament House. And I wanted to acknowledge that there were people in this, Sterling who's standing in that different, who was actually part of the Pinjarra massacre. And the fact that this is something that happens weekly, daily, these kind of conversations about who these men are and what they, they ignore what they actually did do. So I didn't want to acknowledge who they were, so I called this artwork The Great Clock. Um, next work. 
um, and in these spaces. So it became quite an interesting place to be in. Um, and for me, it was um, really um, alien kind of spaces. These uh, hallways of power, which I've never felt that I've had any power as an Aboriginal woman in Australia. Um, I'm holding the mace in this particular image, um, and the mace is actually a weapon uh, for the messenger. Um, and I really found this kind of stuff really interesting to uh, be a part of. I, I don't have a lot of time to go into a lot of these detail, but I did want to actually just mention them quickly. Um, and the next image, I'll probably flick through some of them, but I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, this one is called um, the Speaker's Hall. So each hall uh, has photos of all the men um, and in this image they have the only photos of women, which is across from the toilets. So you can understand that this space is um, very British male dominated space. Um, and there's a lot of tradition and there's a lot of honor for this place. Um, this is going really fast. So uh, this image is, um, uh, <laughs> okay. So this image is uh, the, the image that I really wanted to make and it was really important at the time. Um, this, so this room, um, for because I'm actually Noongar and I'm from Western Australia and for all of my ancestors, this, era, this room, in particular, was a place where all the rules and all the laws were made for my ancestors and which had its impact on myself as well as my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, etc. And I wondered what it would be like if there was one Aboriginal or if every seat was occupied by an Aboriginal person in this space and that we were able to speak about what we thought about our own lives. Um, and that was why, and these, you know, these are, I, I can talk a lot more about these ways, but we don't have enough time. But that was really one of the things that struck me that I had never been in this place. And no one in my family goes into parliament houses. They're kind of alien spaces. When It's not like we're not welcome, but we've never felt invited or welcomed into these places anyway. So it's not somewhere that you would think to go. So this was a fascinating experience to go into these, you know, they're, they're monuments in themselves. They're full of history. Um, and the next one. And I, I included this work because this was a, a work that I'd made in 2007 and it was uh, a public billboard project and it was rejected. And so I think that there are a lot of works that are made by many artists, um, many Indigenous artists, and we're trying to talk about these kind of issues that are really important and that we're growing up with and which some people don't actually know that you know, that my grandfather was a soldier and he also was not a citizen. Um, and my PhD at the moment is uh, about 
the fact that he shot a racist in 1955 and spent 14 years in Pentridge Prison. So there'll be more on that later. So if we go to the next one, keep going. Um, yeah, and so that's him. And, and just a, a quick mention that in researching a lot of this history, we are having to go through the archives and look at the language. Um, you know, we just have to ignore it and just know that we know these people that, they, that we respect and honour our ancestors, but we have to get through this in order to make the work and tell the stories. Um, the next one. Um, yeah, and so that will be the work. That's part of the works that I've been making on Pentridge. Uh, the next one, in particular, with uh, this one is um, is work that I'd made. That one below. So this is where I'm actually from in Western Australia, and the one below in that image is uh, the remains of a white woman, uh, Sarah Cook, and one of the things that they want to do it at that in York is actually make a monument to her because she was um, supposedly murdered by Aboriginal men. And uh, we knew stories of the um, the Aboriginal men, Barabong and Dujeep, who are actually hung by chains nearby. If you go to the next work, um, and I made these works in response to that, and they didn't get any recognition. There's no interest in building a memorial to them and then the next work, and nor were they able to be buried because they were left to hang until they, you know, came off the rotted, basically. Um, and the, the next work... And so I spend a lot of time on country making these kind of works where this is where my mum is on the reserve and we often go to this place so there's nothing there anymore. Um, and uh, she, we were talking about how she, there was always somebody and often a woman who would be watching for the welfare van so that they would have to hide the kids um, so that they wouldn't be taken away. This fear of being so close to your enemy to someone who can affect your life and you have no choices, you have no power. And when history happens, there is no recognition of what happened. It's everything is played down and it's made to seem as though, well, you know, we're sorry that happened. But lives were devastated and communities were broken up and destroyed. But this very simple thing of living so close to somebody who can come and do what they like because you're not considered an English citizen. And the next one. So these were some of the works that were made. This one in particular, which is called On Ancestor Land. And this is my niece in that photo. And it was really to say that we are still here, no matter that there, were, there was attempted genocide in this area. And there's also no recognition. If you look at this photo, we walk through these areas and we tell stories but there isn't anything there except what we pass to each other and what we know. Um, if we do try to acknowledge it, um, we're told that we're trespassing um, and that we can't do it and we could fill out a form you know, to, to have access to this area. So we're often just kind of trying to get, keep all of this alive and trying to keep it um, not forgotten. 
and the next one. Yeah, which is why, you know, this is a witness to this is this idea of um, what has been happening. We're not we're not giving up on these stories. Um, there's probably a lot of questions. That was <laughs> I felt like that was fast. Um, I'll hand it over to Lily. But thank you for listening. Thank you, Diane. Diane, you're I'm not on mute just yet. <laughs> I just realised I forgot to describe myself. Um, as Jen said, I'm Lily Brown. Um, my family belongs to Glombongia country on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. I'm currently sitting out on the veranda, a very hot veranda, actually, of our friend's tropical broom house because my toddler is sleeping upstairs. I'm wearing a black shirt and brass earrings. I have hazel eyes and long um, hair and I have blurred my Zoom background so you cannot see the grubby wall that I am sitting in front of. I'm building on what Diane and Odette have shared briefly today. Um, I'll introduce the work of Yari and Jugan artist Michael Dallaru Torres, who counters the memory laundering of the pearling industry in his works, which reference the enslavement of Aboriginal women as skin divers on pearling luggers in the late 19th century. So while my family belongs to Kumbangia country on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, um, my daughter is actually Yaru from Ribibi Broom on her father's side, which is where I am calling in from today. Uh, we crossed the border early last week in time for my beautiful sister, who also calls Broom home to have her second baby, um, and she's actually due today. So Broom is a really beautiful place, and for those of you that have been here before, you'd know that. Um, it's in the north of Western Australia, 2,000 kilometres from Perth. Um, it's known for its stretches of white sand, which meet warm ocean waters, tropical climate, and more than ever in COVID times, it has become a draw card for people from cold southern country in Perth searching for the sun. So over the years, whenever my partner and I would return to his country, Yaru country in Broome, um, from Nam in Melbourne, we'd often be met at the airport by a lot of family. So we would pile into um, cars and drive to Old Jetty as a part of that return to home. So Old Jetty is a kind of so, slow place in Broome where people sit to watch the tide come in and go out. So as you journey from the airport to Old Jetty, there is this lone statue that looks out over Roebuck Bay. So from afar, the statue could be mistaken as a mermaid bursting from the water, offering a pearl shell to the sky. But as you get closer, it becomes clear it is actually a pregnant Aboriginal woman and she is gasping for air. So when I talked to my mother-in-law and my partner's aunties, they all know stories of these women who were sent down to skin dive, so without any apparatuses for pearl shell and pearls in the late 19th century. So as the foundations of the pearling industry were established, pregnant Aboriginal women were prized as divers by pearling masters who believed these women had increased lung capacity. There are stories of these women being weighted at the ankles and dragged behind boats in the search for pearl shell. So in the lead up to this presentation and the expected due date of the arrival of my sister's baby, I've been thinking a lot about these women. So women were often stolen or blackbirded from their respective countries and taken onto pearling luggers, firstly as pearl divers and later as domestic labor and for sexual exploitation. I also think of the first people's men and children 
who were taken from their homelands between Shark Bay in the south and through to Broome by Pearling Masters who were slavers and like the colonial administrators who built infrastructure, both legal and physical for gold rushes in other parts of the country on the stolen lands of Indigenous peoples, these slavers slash Pearling Masters built much of the north by trading in human labour and pearl shell. So these masters were not so far removed either from the matrix of slaving that Odette referenced briefly in her introduction. So in fact, the town of Broome was named after Sir Frederick Napier Broome, who appears in the legacies of British slave ownership as a colonial administrator in his roles as governor of Trinidad and Tobago and as the son-in-law of Walter George Stewart, who was a slave owner and received compensation for loss of property when slavery was abolished. Frederick Napier Broome was the governor of Western Australia from 1883 to 1889, when slavery was an active practice. So the artist who created this statue of the pregnant woman um, were actually non-Indigenous sculptures, uh, sculptors, Joan and Charlie Smith. Um, they are quoted and they created this, oh, it was um, put up in 2010. And they are quoted as saying that in researching the role of women in the pearling industry, and that's why they were commissioned to do this piece as a celebration of the role of women in pearling, pregnant skin divers were something of a secret history. So this secret history is arguably reflected in their monument, named Women of Pearling, the plaque of which mentions nothing explicitly of this skin diving or the slavery practices that were foundational to the early development of much of the Northwest coast. Um, next slide, Jen. So as a response to this statue and the explicit absence of the role of Aboriginal women in the laundered memory of the white imaginary and pearling industry, these stories are remembered by Michael Jallery Torres, a Yaru and Jugan man and photo media artist from Broome, who is currently based in Melbourne. Um, and likewise, these stories are remembered by my own family and through my partner um, and a lot of the women um, that continue to tell them. So his work provides explicit entry points for more deeply understanding the contested history of pearling. Um, this piece, Bombs, Buttons, Pearls, for example, um, which features um, beautiful mother of pearl shell buttons and a string of pearls blocking the airway of an Aboriginal woman, forces an engagement with the brutal history of this precious gem. Um, and just to note, the Yari woman who posed for this piece is Kimberly Benjamin, who also happens to be my sister-in-law. Um, and her ancestors were, were pearl divers, both First Peoples and Malaysian ancestors. Our next slide, Jen. Thank you. Sorry, I'm not sure why the slide is a little bit fuzzy, but um, so talking to Michael Torres about his work, um, I really felt that this remembering is part of surviving um, and it's a practice of survivance, um, much like what Diane said. And his art provides entry points to consider these histories in their violence and in their complexity. But they also act as reminders that despite this history, we are still here and we are creating and we are thriving. So Jalaru, he says of his work, the emotional connection to suffering and surviving echoes my own life. And through these works, I allow you to feel the pain of history that has been silenced through prosperity and ignorance. Associate your humanity with those women and men who unwillingly collected shell and face death in all for foreign interests with a disregard for our people's well-being while you start your own journey to illuminate the dark history of this country. Like the works that we have referenced today, our chapter is an intervention, um, which is founded on and responds to the survival of First Peoples. So this intervention could also be understood as what Anangak scholar Eve Tuck and C. Ree call a haunting. 
by eliminating the memory laundering practices of the settler colonial state and its administrators through an engagement with the work of First Peoples artists, which directly counter the clean, actively sanitized renderings of the past, we haunt and unsettle, and in doing so, open up the space to counter and heal from and move beyond what Naranga poet and scholar Natalie Harkin calls embodied and genealogical pain. Thank you. Um, thank you, Lily, Diane and Adette. And thank you for struggling through those technical issues. You did really well. It's part of the Zoom life that we all live now, um, that we do our best and you did really well. Thank you. And there's uh, lots of amazing ideas in there, but I'm not going to go into it at all because we've just got 10 minutes now um, to bring everyone back in um, to ask some questions and have a bit of a discussion. So, um, there are a couple of questions from the audience and I've got plenty and I kind of wish we had another half an hour or an hour to talk through um, what we've heard today. But of course, all of these ideas will be present in the book when it's published and so we'll all be able to engage with them at a deeper level. Um, I was really struck, struck by um, Dr. Foley by Fiona talking about the memorial that she envisions that she would like to see on her country. And it reminded me of what Julie was saying yesterday as well, that she has an idea for a memorial um, that she would like to see too. And just thinking about the struggle for Aboriginal artists to be able to tell our stories in these very restricted kind of colonial spaces and, and frameworks that uh, Carol and um, Joel also referenced, you know, the, the struggle to find space within colonising structures um, to be able to present our histories and our stories. And, you know, I was really, um, I've always been struck by the story that Fiona tells about the subterfuge that you've had to use, um, Fiona, to be able to make those memorials exist. You've actually had to actively resist and and blindside um, colonial structures in order to make these memorials real. And I wonder, I'm asking all of you this, but um, how do we make space for self-directed memorialization? How, how do we make space for um, Fiona and for Julie and for Diane and for all of us to be able to, to present the narratives in the way that we want? Lily, you're the biggest face on my screen right now. I don't know if you want to try and answer that. <laughs> oh, for me, I just think I'm not an artist and I'm not a sculptor. Like I'm, you know, so for me, I feel so privileged to have access to these texts that activate, they activate memory and they um, tell stories that we all, we hold, you know, as First Peoples, we already hold these and it allows us to share them and make meaning of them more broadly and their lessons. Um, so I think... I see artists doing this all the time. I see it in, in Diane, Diane and Fiona's work um, and Julie's work um, and, you know, as an educator as well. They're, they're things that I can access and use for a particular purpose and they're transformative when you engage with them in that way. And I just can't stop thinking about, um, you know, this type of memorialisation um, as, as their entry points to facilitate conversation and you cannot act if you don't theorise those actions. And I think that's it's a really important starting place for doing that. So um, I don't know. I think it's, you know, the complexity um, that Carol and Joel talked about is so important um, and it's important to re recognise. But I think it's also really important to honour the fact that this 
artists are so strategic in the way that they produce these things. Um, and that when something is successful in its production, I think it's also really important to recognise the struggle that went into actually producing it. And then actually what that means for justifying our existence on stolen land. Thank you, Lily. I should also mention that we've got Dr. Amy Spears here, um, my collaborator for this amazing book. Um, welcome, Amy. Thank you. Um, Fiona, do you want to talk about or talk to um, the way that you've had to navigate those spaces? Have you ever had an opportunity to determine a, a memorial in your own um, right or have you always been constrained by outside structures? Something I do constantly. Yeah, constrained by outside structures. So here in Queensland, there were opportunities that were taking place with the um, 2% with every government building that went up and a part of that um, build was allocated for artists and that's how um, witnessing the silence came about on Roma Street but in the early stages I had to fight for that commission as well. I just uh, spent some time living back home in Harvey Bay on my traditional country and while I was there I thought what's the most valuable thing that I can give to my people from my um, profession and I thought it would be a public artwork that honoured the um, massacre of 1851. So I did have early discussions with the deputy mayor and we found a site on the top of uh, Indian Head, Takiwuru. But the problem for regional councils is funding. So if I wanted to build a $1 million memorial on an island, first of all, it's the cost of transporting it from the mainland across and uh, finding the appropriate footings. And that's just something that regional councils really don't have in their budget. So that's when the state government really has to step up and allocate and think strategically, okay, in this next round, we're going to allocate, let's just say five million towards five um, Indigenous sovereign nations in the state of Queensland and get this backlog of memorials underway. And so, you know, Arts Queensland has a 10-year uh, roadmap and I don't know if they have anything built into that 10-year plan where there are is an allocation um, for memorials. And I'd also say that, you know, maybe it's not so we we're not so reliant on the state for funds that possibly all of our wealthy football players um, on the East Coast could step up and start to, you know, activate this space like a GoFundMe um, sort of approach. And I just think we have a lot of wealthy um, uh, footballers out there in various codes that could be assisting in this particular area as well. So we're not so reliant on government funds and funds are coming from um, wealthy, upwardly mobile athletes. That's my yeah, feeling. That's a great suggestion and, and hopefully with the truth telling that's starting to be spoken about in different forums like it is in Victoria, there might be a greater understanding of the value of um, these memorials and the stories that they tell. I'm just going to move to an audience question from Marina for Joel and Carol. 
And she says, Joel, would it be appropriate to say that what you're talking about is culturally sustainable architecture, creating new work that is aware of its placement and references its location in a responsive and respectful way? Um, I think, yeah, I, I got to read the question um, before and I've been thinking about it um, a little bit while listening to um, everyone else's um, that amazing um, presentation. I think I think it's a bit I, I think it's a step back from there. I think it's I think it's um cult, like architecture as we currently have it is culturally sustainable for a particular culture, right? Um, there is there are particular power structures and models of development and extraction that um, see social reproduction in a particular cultural direction. And there's the capitalist kind of patriarchal white supremacist mode. Um, so that's not particularly sustainable with, uh, you know, limited resources on a finite planet and <laughs> how it comes into contact with different um, ways of being and doing on different countries and particularly here on this one. Um, I, I, think, I think the question and what Carol and I are really concerned with is this question of, um, you know, if we have been materialized in a kind of capitalist colonial framework, the first part is to try and unpick that material, try and unpick the materiality um, of, each, of ourselves and each other as well, as we're trying to move forward and, and, and unpack these things. Um, I, think, I think mob were memorializing and monumentalizing um, their cultures prior to um, settlement. I think um, colonial settlement, I, I've been doing lots of work back on where I um, live at the moment, looking at, um, the kind of cultural history of, of the middens in on Gadigal country. And when you think about the scale at which they stood, you know, along um, the coastline, they, they were monumental, but also how they were kind of, you know, read as material as soon as colonists got there, that was lime, that was lime to be burnt and turned into plaster, turned into bricks, turned into mortar. Um, opening up that conversation about how those monuments changed into, you know, the existing, um, capitalist urbanism of Sydney um, is interesting. I think um, where I think a kind of an older or maybe or less contemporary viewing of that, um, that particular moment would say that that was an erasure, which I do believe that all of the violence connected to erasure is true about that. If we think about how that, that fabric was kind of the same when, you know, essentially what I'm saying is, um, Sydney's urbanism was ex existed before white people and we need to understand that sort of parts of our lived cultures in these places are inherited from those past histories and um, we need to think about materials differently to go forward and, I, and I, I don't know if the way that we currently do those things will get us there so I'm just it's kind of complicated way of getting to that to that answer but um, yeah I <sighs> I think sustainability has a pretty like lame connotation now. Um, I think that needs to be led by um, indigenous people in a different way. And it doesn't need to sit within a sort of kind of Western framework of what sustainability means. I think it's a complete cultural overhaul. It's a different thing. Thanks, Joel. Um, unfortunately, I don't think we have much time for many more questions. Um, I, I did want to respond to Diane and Odette and Lily and to say, 
that I love the concept of memory laundering and of that um, whitewashing of historical figures. And we did cover a little bit of that ground yesterday, talking about people such as Macmillan and Gippsland and the amazing examples you gave, Diane, um, hanging in WA's Parliament House. Um, so thank you for all that you brought to this discussion. And again, I wish we had a bit more time to um, spend some time discussing um, with everyone. And sorry, we didn't get to all your questions, audience members, but thanks very much for being with us. Um, Amy, did you want to say anything just to wrap up? Uh, not really. I mean, just thank you, everyone. They were really fantastic um, presentations. Like I, I often had chills throughout the um, sessions, but I also, um, for those who weren't tuned in last session last yesterday, we we're actually working on a book project, uh, Jen and I. So the, the plan is that everyone will work up these draft papers I've given today and turn them into chapters for a book. Um, so yes, you will keep, should keep an eye out for that book, which will come out 2022. But um, thanks everyone. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. And thanks very much to our hardworking interpreters. It's very much appreciated. And I, I hope we spoke slowly enough as we um, work through some really difficult concepts and terms. So very much appreciate your contribution. Um, thank you to all the speakers, contributors, and everyone for joining um, the second session of Counter Monuments, Indigenous Settler Relations in Australian Contemporary Art and Memorial Practices Online Symposium. Just realised I was talking a little bit fast then, sorry. Um, the final session of this online symposium will run tomorrow at 4 p.m. via Zoom with presentations by the Unbound Collective and John Mundine, chaired by Dr. Marnie Badham. Registrations and the full symposium program are available via ACCA's website. Um, and as we said, you'll be able to access this recording there very soon and you'll be able to find our book in the not too distant future. Thanks again for joining us, everyone, and we look forward to seeing you tomorrow.